Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G Science Fiction, Fantasy and Historical Radio for episode number 1434. Entitled Arthur Moment, and our podcast title is The Pod in the Stone. I'm Rob Jack. And Megan McHugh. And today we're going to be looking at oh, quite a bit of a slate of things, uh, mm-hmm. Once and Future, which are graphic novels about the matter of Britain. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of matters to discuss about Britain at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> and also, Megan, you're going to talk about a movie that you've been off to see. Yes, I will be talking about the science fiction prehistoric action film 65 starring Adam Driver. Ooh, one of your favourite actors. Yes, indeedy. That's why I trotted along and you'll tune in to see how I felt about it all. (laughs) But first I wanted to have a look. It kind of sort of sets the tone really because it's the Tony, that is. It's an action figure. It is the Ironheart figure, a Hasbro Marvel Legends range. I mean, you know, I'm often talking about action figures and so on, but I wanted to focus upon this one today because of – a new green initiative, I should say, that they've, they've got. Interested. Now, yeah, it's not so strange to ha- for them to be trying to, I suppose in a way it's like greenwashing, isn't it? But it, it, it is kind of from the heart of the Ironheart in this case. And what they've done, you might be familiar with the traditional Marvel Legends packaging, which has a cardboard box with lots of snazzy printing mm-hmm. on it and a big plastic window in the front. Yep. Then they use further plastic mouldings to support the figure. Mm-hmm and often sub-mouldings as well, transparent plastic, and also plastic-coated wires to hold the figure down. All of that's gone. Wow. Nothing at all. Now, okay, granted, you still have the actual plastic action figure. But reduction is good. But they will never be thrown away. <laughs> so they won't end up in landfill. In fact, they will outlast the human race. <laughs> won't they, though? As we've, dis- as we've discussed before, Funko pops bobbling in the risen ocean. <laughs> Okay, so this is the Marvel Studios Black Panther Wakanda Forever mm-hmm. version of the suit that Riri Williams, which is to say the character of Ironheart, mm-hmm. is kind of taking over from Tony Stark when it comes to building iron armour or at least battle suits in the MCU. And she is a young woman. Dominic Thorne plays her in the 2022 Wakanda Forever movie. And she builds two suits of armour in that, if memory serves me. One of them is her prototype that she's tinkered together and obviously inspired by Tony Stark and his Iron Man suit, but she's got her own take on it. And then when she ends up in Wakanda, Princess Shuri, who is now the Black Panther in the series, she helps her build a new suit. And we're assuming that this is made of vibranium now, the magic material Rather like Beskar, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a whole can of worms, Beskar versus Vibranium. Well, let's not go there today. 
we don't want to have any more Star Wars or Stark Wars in this case. So this is the armor that she built in Shuri's workshop using all those Wakandan resources yep. and gave the Winter Soldier an, an arm from Wakanda, which Rocket Raccoon has now. Yes, famously. <laughs> and they gave Captain America Sam Cap mm-hmm. a new winged suit in the Winter Soldier and the Falcon series. This armor that Riri wears, it's featured in the sea battle in Wakanda Forever with Namor's Tolokani army. Mm-hmm. Now, something occurred to me that the Wakandans and the Tolokani have quite a bit in common. That's probably why they don't get on much. Yep. <laughs> They're both wary of colonization. They're both isolationist nations to an Namor's people are underwater <laughs> for a start. <laughs> And Wakanda sits behind those magnificent force shields, stealth screens. And they're both highly technologically advanced nations with proud and stubborn superpower rulers. But you know what it really breaks down to? Cats versus fish. (laughs) (laughs) I thought of that the other day, you know, because the Wakandans are all into the whole bass thing and and the panther and Namor's got a whole aquatic thing going. No wonder they have problems. I should also mention that the Ironheart figure is based upon MCU concept artist Phil Saunders' concepts, as well as the comic book artist A.D. Granoff's art for Ironheart in the comic books. This particular action figure stands 17 centimetres tall, Mm -hmm. basically mostly hot rod red, a little bit brighter than that actually, trimmed with gold and blue with some black elements inside of it in terms of the inserts on the chest plates and and the big, huge jet thrusters at the back. So it's got these massive shoulder wings and the blaster and all Mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. It comes with a sculpt of Riri Williams' head and also with the helmet on too. Swap it out. Mm. It always freaks me out when you pull the head off and put the other <laughs> I will point out that she does have her cornrow hairstyle, which is not only culturally significant, but also really works well under a helmet. Yeah, it's you practical. Know, it's, and, of course, she has that heart-shaped arc reactor mm-hmm. sort of thing going on there. Not an arc-shaped herb, but, you know, a reactor. It's a little bit manga, actually, looking at it. 20 points of articulation, which is pretty good, actually. You know, it does all that sort of superhero landing type stuff and flames shooting out of the back blasts from the engines. It always makes me wonder about Riri how much of her technology is kind of Stark-inspired and how much has she's done her own. She's really quite a genius in her own right. Absolutely. You know, and I think to be even th- able to take on some of the Stark tech and build it, you know, be inspired by it requires mm-hmm. a lot of mental brain power. She's actually got one over Tony at the moment in the comic books. Well, not only is she in possession of the Mandarin's 10 rings, but she calls Tony old man, (laughs) (laughs) which is quite true. I'm curious, you were talking about the green packaging. So what does it come packaged in now? Okay, so I'll show you the box, show the listeners the box. (laughs) And it's a full cardboard box. And okay, it reminds me of the Lego packaging. Lego have been doing this for years, basically just a printed artwork box, and then you open it up. There is some plastic in the sticky tape that they use to hold the box down, but, you know, that's a security uh, issue and a little bit of glue in it, glue in the ever. So you pull it out and you get this, like, a cardboard tray instead of the plastic gotcha. one. okay. And then inside, everything is packaged up in little paper bags. Oh, wow. With a twist on them, so it's like lollies. <laughs> and you can get all the bits and pieces out of those. <laughs> all your little you know. treaties come out of there. That's pretty – I actually am really into that idea that they've rethought that packaging. 
It makes really good radio too. We're an ASMR show now. (laughs) You've got your uh, missile trails that wrap around the wrists, all the standard things that you use for these these figures. I like this actual concept. To me, it's like a little mystery package. Yeah, it's like a goodie bag. How do collectors feel about the change? Because I guess obviously packaging and like keeping things in pristine condition and how it's all presented is kind of part of the collector's mindset. Have you heard of any backlash, any furor around it or support? What's the vibe? A bit of both. Okay. Let's ignore the the still sleeping people who aren't into the environment. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Who just think that we can just pollute forever. Mm. And obviously, if you can't see the figure, it's like, oh, I don't know what I'm getting and all that. But, you know, it's high quality photographs and artwork on the front. You know what you get. Yeah. You know, don't be silly. Don't be childish. Yeah, agree. I mean, you are collecting action figures, so you shouldn't be childish. (laughs) Also, like, go on Google and have a quick look. Like, if you really need to see, you can, I'm sure someone's uploaded a photo. Like, you're just being petty. Yeah. So the other thing that I like is that particular aspect that you can put it back into the packaging yeah. easily. Yes. A lot of these other ones, you know, you, once you've ripped them out and, and you distorted them and all that sort of stuff, it's hard to get them back in. But these, you know, they just drop right back into the little paper bag yeah. and you put back them in. And if you discard the packaging completely, you can put it into the recycling and everything. Yeah. I actually like the fact that you can store the figures in the paper bags, yeah. which is a non-toxic way of storing yeah. the figures rather than in plastic bags and stuff because you've got to protect the, the paint jobs on them. Anyway, it's a great little figure. I, I liked it a lot. It's a Hasbro Marvel Legend one. They do have quite a few other Ironheart figures based on the comic book yep. actual version by now because that's been out for a while. But they also have a, a Wakanda Forever figure, which is simpler in its construction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this is not a Marvel Legends one, but it's really a battle action one. Right. They produce a series of figures that can do things. Again, no plastic bubble on this. Mm-hmm. and the Ties that hold it to the backing card, or the J-hook card, as they call it. Oh, yeah. The way it hangs on the uh, the pegs in the shop. They rope, so there's oh. no real plastic in that involved. Again, plastic figure, I know. But this figure has a really cool action. When you squeeze the legs, mm. as it often is with these things, it does this. <laughs> its blasters rotate off the back up against the side of the head, which must be awfully noisy in battle, but, you know, cool stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like the, the rethinking of the packaging, and it's great to see that Ironheart has her own Marvel movie figure too. All right, so let's have a track here to lead into the next bracket, and this is a King Arthur-related track. Mm-hmm. It's The Curse of the Dead King, and it's by Jersley Buttinger. It's actually from a computer game. Oh. You know, that vast trillion-dollar industry, <laughs> King Arthur's Knight's Tale is the game, and it's The Curse of the Dead King. <laughs> so this puts us into a mode to go off and have a look at the graphic novel Once and Future. This is China Mievel, author of The City and the City, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM, Melbourne. Today's episode number was 1434, and that fits right in with the medieval feel of that musical track, <laughs> which is actually far from medieval. Well, we're talking Dark Ages, really, for King Arthur, though it probably wasn't all that dark at the time, unless there was a climate catastrophe, as people have theorised. Now, that particular track was from a video game, vast industry that it Mm -hmm. is, and it's called The Curse of the Dead King. But the actual game, 
is known as King Arthur Knight's Tale, and that track was by Churchley Buttinger. Now, that game is one where Arthur is dead and Mordred died killing him and Arthur has cursed the afterlife. And this is one of those neo-core games, Dark Fantasy. And I played that because I like the idea that it's a a much darker Mm -hmm. take on the King Arthur legends where Arthur's a bit of a villain in, (laughs) in this case. And that's really plugs right into the thing we're going to discuss next. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, once and future graphic novels. There's so much about the matter of Britain, or as you can call it, King Arthur, the legends of. Mm-hmm. The historical antecedents of King Arthur are still very much under debate. It can go either way, but it's a bit like UFOs. You know, may not be flying saucers, there may not be anything real behind it, but the phenomenon mm. of King Arthur is very much real in a mythical, legendary, storytelling way. So, comic books and King Arthur. Camelot has been used as a setting in other heroes' books quite often, mm-hmm. and either by people going back to the mythical time or else coming forward into the future and bringing it that way. So, you know, I mean, across Batman, Superman, Captain Marvel, which is to say the Shazam one, not Carol Danvers, um, X-Men, Variant, Mutants, Doctor Doom and Tony Stark, they've all gone back in time to Camelot. And in one what-if style story, Stark, stranded back in time, inherits the throne after Arthur falls in battle and goes on to found a technological utopia that lasts a thousand years. Of course he does. (laughs) Even Donald Duck and family have been oh. there. <laughs> spin-off characters from the matter of Britain, uh, DC's Shining Knight and also their Silent Knight mm-hmm. and the Jack Kirby creation, Etrigan the Demon. Uh, in a post-Holocaust world, there's the Atomic Knights who revived Arthurian armoured adventuring astride giant mutant Dalmatians. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of love that. <laughs> <laughs> Over in Marvel, there's the Black Knight, and Captain Britain got his powers from King Arthur. And there's a, a Captain Britain-related spin-off called Knights of Pendragon. And, of course, Dr. Faisa Hussain wields the sword Excalibur in contemporary times as part of the team of the same name, which is to say Excalibur. Of course, there's Hal Foster's renowned Prince Valiant, and Arthur Pendragon is in the manga The Seven Deadly Sins. <laughs> and also in its sequel, Four Nights of the Apocalypse, he becomes the main antagonist. Now, Morgan Le Fay and Merlin, as well as other characters, have appeared many times in both Marvel and DC Comics outside of their ancient Camelot times, usually fighting alongside or against modern-day superheroes, sometimes both at once. Morgan, in particular, materialises as a special guest villain in a wide range of comic books from alternate Archie tie-in comics <laughs> through to Image Comics' Lady Pendragon. As a side note, Morgan has been a featured character in several Marvel animated series episodes and also in the 1970s Doctor Strange television movie and as the season three Big Bad in the Runaways series <laughs> where she was played by Liz Hurley. Ooh. Hellboy is descended from Arthur Mm -hmm. via Mordred, and there's an alternate version of King Arthur in the 
1982 highly regarded Camelot 3000 series of comic books. So they've got in that the Arthurian myths revived in modern times, a little bit futuristic times. You know, Arthur is the once and future king mm-hmm. and is said to be sleeping, and he and his knights will be awakened in time of Britain's greatest peril. Mm-hmm. Although they managed to miss out on the whole Boris Johnston thing. I would have thought that would have been... I was going to say, like, <laughs> does that mean there's worse to come that's going to be the... <laughs> well, at least Arthur hasn't woken up yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, pretty much most of these deal quite often with Arthur as a benign character, an inspirational one, yeah. great leader, a hero, etc. But there have been ones where there have been a bad King Arthur, mm-hmm. Indeed, an evil Arthur. And, you know, that kind of ties in with uh, a little bit of trivia that sits very ill in the Arthurian legends in general when he discovers that he's had an incestuous relationship with Morgan or Morgaus. All these things get a bit conflated in various legends and has a, a bastard child, Mordred, somewhere out there in the world. In some of the variants of the legends and the stories, he has the knights ride out, collect all the children who have been born in a certain time, put them in a boat, take them out to sea and sink the boat. You know, that's pretty evil stuff. Quite biblical, isn't it? Not good. So you can run into those sorts of interpretations. If you want a really dastardly King Arthur, go to David Drake's novel, The Dragon Lord, where both Arthur and Merlin are ruthless and power-hungry and a bit mad. Kind of fun, though, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it was actually great fun. Now, two once and future. What I have here are four graphic novels. Um, Volume one, The King Mm -hmm. is Undead. Volume 2, Old English, and 3 is The Parliament of Magpies. What a great title that is. And number 4 is Monarchies in the UK. Now, this was a comic book series that ran between August 2019 and October 2022. And these are all from Boom Comics, which is an LA-based studio that (laughs) actually got its start by its founding lights, being comic book optioners, producers in Hollywood, and they were a bit frustrated by the whole process there. So they actually went out and did some of their own comics and mm-hmm. you know sorted it all out and got this Boom Comics going. It's a, a great little label with a lot of stuff that's being looked at quite closely by Netflix. Oh, well, they look yeah, at everything. But they also, yeah, but they also have a, a deal with Disney as well because oh. part of their – Stock was owned by Fox and, you know, when Disney acquired Fox Studios. Yeah, so that's kind of complicated there. But And Once in Future actually has been listed as being optional. Yeah, so right. I could see why. And it's really hard to do that because, you know, as you know, King Arthur has had a checkered career in movies and TV shows, a lot of false starts, ones that started out well. You know, like Camelot, one with um, Ava Green, she – was a major character. I think she played Morgana, actually, in that one. You know, the uh, the Merlin series. Yes. And, and some of the movies have, you know, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, Guy Ritchie's one, pretty awful. Oh, actually. that was terrible. Yeah. That was a bit disappointing. Totally. I think they tried to set up a franchise and it didn't take. Yeah, yeah. I think the best way to do it would be just to do one movie at a time. If you're going to do the franchise featuring one of the knights and then go off and do the the Camelot movie with them all together, MCU style, you know. Maybe even you could put the recent Green Knight that we love so Yeah, much. I mean, and that was a, a highlight of, 
of these kinds of yeah. adaptations. But never mind, we'll move on to the graphic novels. Boom Studios 5 graphic volume novel series of Once and Future adapting 30-odd issues of the comic. It's a horror comic, actually, by Kyron Gillen. He's a British comic book writer, former video game and music journalist, and known for whole bunch of projects, Warhammer, spin-off, Phonogram, X-Men, Beta Ray Bill, Journey into Mystery. He's done work on Iron Man, Star Wars, Eternals, a comic book called Uber, and Batman, you know, just across IDW, Marvel, DC, Image, Dynamite, and Boom. And this story reflects his passion for Arthurian matters. Mm -hmm. And this is like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is a great fun film made even more cheeky if you happen to know a lot about the Arthurian legends. And so Once in Future will repay you if you've watched a lot of Arthurian movies, read a lot of books and so on. So there's a lot of deep cuts in this, really. The art is by Dan Mora, who is a... Costa Rican comic book artist, did a lot of work for Boom under sort of an exclusive contract for a while, but he's also worked on other spin-offs like Power Rangers and Buffy. Oh. Buffy is probably the key one to remember in terms of comic books. He was the artist for the new Buffy the Vampire Slayer comic book series. And, you know, because it's about uh, supernatural elements and stuff, you can feel like he's got the the range of mm. it. He's done a lot of cover illustrations for things like Daredevil, um, The Flash, Batgirl, Spirits of Vengeance mm. and so on. A highly regarded artist. I love his work. He's just got a, a sense of dynamism that comes across in the, in the printed page. He's not afraid to break outside of the boxes and and splash across a whole page and get outside of the lines. Yeah, and nice. kind of. oh, you'll also find that these graphic novel collections include galleries of the individual comic book covers, which is oh, quite cool. common. That's, I like when they include that because when you get the compilation, yeah. you kind of do want to know what art you've maybe missed out on by not getting them individually. And the colours, and these are really call-out colours in this. They're by Tamara Bonvillain. Tamara has been drawing from a very early age, born in Germany, raised in Augusta, Georgia, has worked on Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur and Wonder Woman. And I find the the colours are very sophisticated in this, you know, because it is a horror comic. It can range from the very, very dark. In fact, so dark that it's hard to see the figures in them. Like these are pages they're specially printed. Wow, okay. Very, very subtle. Beautiful work in here. A lot of browns. The use of browns that I thought was quite impressive. And it really helps the comic pop or not when it needs not to pop, right. you know. Very important in a horror comic. Some beautiful work in these books, Once and Future. Okay, now this is a rather darker interpretation of the Arthurian legends than you've probably encountered before. So let's fire a quick track from the trebuchet. It's David Santos's Dark Camelot from their album The Fall. Hi, this is Scott Bakula. Welcome aboard Zero-G. There's something the matter with the matter of Britain. Dark Camelot from David Cassantis' album The Fall. Back chatting about the matter of Arthur regarding Boom Studios' five-volume graphic novel series, Once and Future. Now, the characters. Look, it's about a, a family of mythbusters, I suppose you could call <laughs> them. A bit like the Winchester family. Okay, yep. Okay, so the main character is Bridget Maguire, and she is a little old lady. Oh, 
Love it already. Actually retired mm-hmm. from the biz. Yep. And living in a retirement home. Okay. Okay. You think that's going to last? <laughs> yeah, she just doesn't, you know, sip her tea in the retirement home and end of story, does she? No. People keep calling her Miss Marple. <laughs> so think of her like that, except what if Miss Marple was actually Elsa Bloodstone, monster hunter, <laughs> grown old? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She's cantankerous, she's pernickety, she's wicked with a quip, of course, but she hasn't got quite as much of a potty mouth as Elsa Bloodstone. And is she tough? Oh, my God. When she's fully kitted out with weapons and, you know, she's just a a terror to anything supernatural and and nasty and and anything that goes bump in the night. She (laughs) kind of goes clank in the night because she's got (laughs) so much armament. She's got an arsenal buried in the ground underneath a a hatch, you know, like they all do. She sounds great. (laughs) She's great. And she has a grandson whose name is Duncan. And he's a rugby-playing academic, perfectly suited for the life of adventure that's going to be rudely thrust upon him (laughs) because his gran Mm -hmm. has been working on developing him as a a particular knight of the round table. And I'll get to that in a moment. But poor old Duncan, his most common line in the first book at least is, Ah! Something goes wrong. <laughs> Some horror lurches out of the night and attacks him. But it's all right. Gran is there to explain everything. Good, good old Gran, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and usually to put an end to it yeah, too. Yeah. You know, she terminates monsters with extreme prejudice. <laughs> There's also Rose who is a woman of colour and also an academic. <laughs> she comes into the plot as a character who can use pins and sharp objects to take readings of the landscape. So if they want to know where a supernatural phenomenon is manifesting, she casts, say, bobby pins over a map, and they will stick in in the places. If the supernatural phenomena is really drastic, she can use just about anything made of iron. You know, and this ties into, like, fairy lore and all that sort of stuff. She's a great character too. It's not just there to be a love interest for Duncan, although that does actually evolve as they go along but she's there to play a a great sort of every person counterfoil to the weirdness and the wackiness that's going on and she has a set of lovely parents who are totally baffled by all of this they live in bath and they're academics right gotcha so suddenly it's all made manifest and initially they're baffled but then they sort of get into the spirit of things literally and then of course the other main blocks of characters like the elderly citizens and staff of the retirement home who end up being under siege from all sorts of <laughs> monsters and stuff and, and actually rise to the occasion quite well. I bet. <laughs> then there are various United Kingdom government officials from the Prime Minister down to the handlers, if you can call them that, who work with Bridget and her family and have done so over the ages. In fact, there's an accord between the government and this particular clan of monster slayers. Basically, it's hands off, (laughs) (laughs) but we will provide you with backup and support. Just don't get too many local policemen killed. It's quite a vicious world that they live in. And it all goes horribly pear-shaped. And, of course, there are the otherworlders, the creatures and characters from myth and legend and story. Hmm. And where King Arthur comes in, there's a bunch of British nationalists, you know, with Brexit and all that sort of stuff. And then neo-Nazis too. Wow, much. okay. They perform a supernatural ritual because they want King Arthur to come back and help Britain. 
I see. Mm. Yeah. Well, Arthur does return and his knights and Merlin as well. It's not what they wanted. Okay. <laughs> Basically think zombie King Arthur. Ooh. Mm. And he is quite ruthlessly dedicated to becoming the once and future king. Mm-hmm. And you know, this is all related through Bridget who understands all of this thing and is quite bothered that somebody's actually gone and done this. Yeah. And she has a counter plan involving her grandson, Duncan. It involves turning him into a knight of the round table himself. Because this is how you manipulate these stories. Yeah. You actually have to believe in them, and hence why it's kept secret from the populace, because if everybody believes in it, then it's all going to intrude into the physical realm. There is an other world, other land type setup that operates parallel to ours, so you've seen this kind of thing in like Doctor Who and God Red Dwarf and you know that that Storyland sort of world yeah, type thing. Yep, it's all there in back of it, mm-hmm. a little bit like uh, Fables. Yep. And what was that television series? Uh, was it Once Upon a Time? Yeah. Yes, Once Upon a Time. Yeah. So it's not just the matter of Britain or King Arthur. There's also other stories from like Beowulf. Oh, cool. Shakespeare's King Lear, diverse other legends, all of them mutated and twisted by the fact that they're actually being put into stories as well. Right. Now, Gillen, the creator of this, is not the first person to note that there is one particular strand of folk stories that can act as a natural counter to King Arthur. Mm-hmm. I have thought of that myself along the way. I thought, you know, if you were going to pick another story to pose in opposition to the nobility, mm-hmm. I know which one it would be. You can probably guess that all by yourself just thinking about that. A strand of British folk stories that is about taking down kings and bad kings and so on. <laughs> So you should not try and know too much about this stuff because it goes bad for you right. in the story. <laughs> so to think about it is to name it, is to whistle it up, mm. you know, that kind of thing. These are great stories, really rich and textured. The characters are terrific. The jokes in it sometimes tend to be a little bit academic, but that's all right. And there's more than one King Arthur because there are more than one Arthurian strands of story. Okay. You know, I mean, you've got all of the French stuff that's been overlaid at a later date and you've got the Celtic stuff. Yeah. And, and then there's the fact that the Victorians were very into King Arthur and had their own ideas about it. And, you know, so it's all very complicated and I, and I really appreciated that. This is one of the finest Arthurian stories I've read in comic books. It stands alongside that epic Camelot 3000 that I mentioned before. A very worthy thing to read. Now, where can you get it? Well, I picked up my paper editions at All Star Comics in Melbourne. Other comic book shops obviously stock them as well. You can also get them on Kindle. Oh, cool. There are five volumes in the Once and Future graphic novel collection, each with their own title. The King is Undead, Old English, The Parliament of Magpies, great title that, Monarchies in the UK, and The Wasteland, with a nod to T.S. Eliot there in the title. It's from Boom Comics. Excellent story. had a great time reading this. But you don't actually have to be too deep in Arthurian buff to appreciate it, but you will get a lot extra out of it. If you are. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. So I was struggling for tracks for this, lots of Arthurian (laughs) tracks. I wanted to get one that was appropriate to Mm. it, so this one's not Arthurian at all. But it's by Skull Tavern. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here we go. It's a single. It's got a rather cute graphic of a little old lady holding a what looks to be a Gatling gun, machine gun type thing. It's called, I love this, Grandma Got a Kill in Fortnite. Oh, my God. (laughs) 
Hi, this is Corey McAbee from Stingray Sam and the American Astronaut, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 R FM. He does the things that folks don't do that need to be done. <laughs> <laughs> it's all there. Nothing left in the video game there. Grandma got a kill in Fortnite by Skull Tavern is the name of the band. I've never played Fortnite, but I've got some of the figures from it. Oh, really? I have played it. I'm not very good. I think it's something you can get very good at, and as a beginner, uh, not so much. So, <laughs> Does that apply to the movie that you're going to talk about now, Megan? <laughs> well, in fact, yes. So 65 is the film I'm going to talk about. Uh, it's a sci-fi prehistoric action film. It's just out now in cinemas, so it's still showing in a lot of places. This one's directed and written by Scott Beck and Brian Woods. There are a couple of collaborators who wrote A Quiet Place, which was a real winner. And they Ooh, also yeah. directed another horror film called Haunt, which they also wrote. Yes, like I mentioned, they wrote and directed it as well. This one was produced by Sam Raimi too, which I thought was quite interesting and a bit of a surprise. Basically, the film is really pitched as we've got Mills, played by Adam Driver. He's a pilot on a futuristic advanced spaceship that's whizzing through the galaxy carrying a load of cryosleep passengers from the planet Samaris. Unfortunately, uh, he has a run-in with some stray asteroids and they knock the ship around and it crash lands on a mysterious planet that, not a spoiler, it's part of the plot, turns out to be Earth during the Cretaceous ah. period. So... The title comes from the fact that this is set 65 million years ago, which also means dinosaurs. So if I was to give you the pitch for this film, it's dinosaurs and laser guns and Adam Driver. And that's pretty much how it was marketed. How can you go wrong? (laughs) Well, there's many ways you can go wrong, Rob, as I'll outline in a moment. Unfortunately, we don't like to be too negative on Zero G, but consider this a warning shot. So... I'll just quickly run through the cast. It won't take long because there's two of them essentially. We've got, as I mentioned before, Adam Driver playing Mills. He's our stoic, boring hero. So, you know, they crash land, but blip, blip, away in the distance, uh, you know, a decent quest length away. There's the escape pod there. Maybe it's still working. Let's go and see. So he's determined to slog through this unfamiliar terrain to get to this escape pod. Well, actually... He's not that determined to do that until it is revealed that there's another survivor. So he's originally like, I'll just give up. I've had a good long run. But he discovers uh, a fellow survivor who has woken from the cryo sleep, Koa. So Koa is Mills's companion on this journey. Koa is played by Ariana Greenblatt. Just to return to Driver, obviously, we know and love him for many things like Star Wars, The Last Jewel, The Dead Don't Die, uh, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. I think we've covered almost all of a lot of Driver's genre work here on Zero G. He also does quite a lot of dramatic films as well. So Koa, played by Ariana Greenblatt. So Greenblatt is known for uh, She Was in Love and Monsters, the Netflix film that we both rather enjoyed. She mm-hmm. Now, this is where I recognized her from, and I didn't click until I saw this. She played young Gamora in Avengers Infinity War. 
God, yes, that would be a hard bit. Yeah, and then she was also in the Netflix film Awake, which was kind of one of those dystopia things, but you can't go to sleep, so hence the title. So we've really just got the movie hinged around these two. It's a very contained film with just the two characters moving on a quest through these different environments and coming upon variety of dinosaurs, basically. So a variety of different um, fights and encounters. So it's a little video gamey in that way, actually. We do also have a third character. Chloe Coleman plays uh, Mills's daughter in a series of flashbacks and video messages. She was in Way of Water, the Avatar film, and she's also going to be in Honor Among Thieves, the new Dungeons and Dragons film too. Does that mean that he's bonding with the new girl, hmm you know, as a way of making up for the loss of his own daughter? It's a very, yes, we are definitely in trope territory. And, you know, obviously this is a trope that we're seeing a lot of lately and it's done well, it's done beautifully, not here. So this is definitely, you know, it's the age of The Last of Us. And as I mentioned, this is the TV show that I'm saying did it quite well, this father and found daughter combo. Whereas, yeah, straight away you can clock we've got reluctant hero with a gun, young girl who, you know, is standing in for a lost daughter in this film as well. But sadly, um, their relationship feels very unearned and I didn't really care about them or their fate. And they don't convincingly like each other and they also don't hate each other. So it's not a very interesting relationship at all. There's no tension. So you're spot on, Rob, in that in the age of having this trope done very well elsewhere, this one just fell very, very flat. And that's kind of just the start of some of its issues. Didn't we see this same kind of trope in Will Smith's After Earth? Quite possibly. I think it's a pretty easy cut and paste template, to be honest, for a way to make someone have the old dark past and force them to bond with a new character reluctantly. And I think a lot always hinges on the chemistry between those two characters. So let's take a little bit of a track before I sort of rip this film a new one. So this is from the score. Now it's interesting because originally Danny Elfman was to compose the score. He often collaborates with Sam Raimi. But actually the score ended up being done by a composer called Chris Bacon. So he's another uh, collaborator who has worked with Elfman before, but it seems like now he is the one who's done most of this music. And Elfman does have a couple of credits on a few of the pieces. Not this one, though. So this one is Samaris, and this one's composed by Chris Bacon for the film 65. Wow! Hey, Space Buddies! I'm Danny John Jules. I play the cat on Red Dwarf. And I gotta tell you that listening to Zero G is fashionable as wearing knee-length socks with thongs. Zero G, industrial strength sci-fi pum-pum on three triple R. That was the track Sumaris by Chris Bacon from the film 65. So... Okay, thoughts on the film. So as I mentioned before, we've really just got these two characters. They get stuck in a variety of situations um, and are happened upon by dinosaurs. So got classic adventure scenarios like falling out of a tree, getting stuck in a cave, hiding in a log, getting in quicksand. But it's neither fun nor tense, unfortunately. So we really set out quite quickly. We don't spend very much time on the crashed ship. 
We really set out into the environment, uh, both Mills and Coa. You know, I don't like to generally be negative, but I really didn't care for this film. <laughs> it's, and I do think there's so much good content out there. You know, just consider this a bit of a guide. I'm a driver fan, as we talked about before. I really love him. I know he overacts sometimes, but I think he's beautiful at it. I thought it would be silly, action, fun. I mean, all the ingredients are there dinosaur, laser gun, Adam Driver, found family. But the plot notes are quite predictable and the action falls very flat. There's not nearly enough of it. And somehow it still feels like a slog. I mean, we are slogging through the the rainforest here, but I just think there's a bit of a lack of stakes and chemistry. So that just made it feel boring because I wasn't that engaged, which is a real, real, real shame. And I do think that I thought it was a smaller budget, but I think it, it had a decent budget, but it sort of, to me, the film felt a bit like a COVID era film where they're doing the best with what they can. It's got a limited cast, but, and it was commissioned in COVID. So I'm not sure exactly kind of, Maybe the special effects just didn't. I, maybe I'm getting old and and um <laughs> too too jaded or something like that. What about the special effects? I mean, you know, the dinosaurs are actually obviously the third or the fourth star of the film. How how good are they? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of good scenes, but they're knockoffs. They're Jurassic Park knockoffs, basically, and. You know, apart from the ending where we really see some big dinosaur stuff for maybe five or ten minutes, uh, there's a lot of the dinosaur encounters that are they, they use like movie hacks where, oh, we've cut away and we're watching the fight happen on a little radar screen or the environment's super dark and so we're using blasts of light to only get glimpses of the dinosaur sometimes. So those are really great ways to incorporate dinosaurs or special effects without having to spend a lot of money. But I do think I would have just loved to see like either terrible special effect dinosaurs and we're just like shooting at them having a great time or build tension properly and use some of those kind of techniques to really push forward a dramatic story. So we're not really doing either. We're not doing an all out guns blazing thing. And we're also not doing a dramatic story of tension either, unfortunately. And I think the characterization is why. I don't know who these people are. The The film really harps on about Driver's daughter, about her, but you really don't get a sense of who he is. They just use these video messages to kind of remind you constantly that he has a daughter at home or did. It's meant to be very sad, but it's quite annoying. <laughs> and we know even less about Koa, the, the you know daughter character the young girl in this. She has minimal dialogue because she doesn't speak English and that's fine. I think you can have a character that doesn't speak much during a film, but you need the chemistry to really be working for you in that case. And I just didn't feel it was, unfortunately. I think when you don't really care if they make it to the escape pod or not, you're already on the back foot, unfortunately, <laughs> with me. But, and, you know, I think I always appreciate the time effort that goes into these kinds of movies, but I think it was unevenly pitched. It, it was either trying to be too serious or not serious enough. And one good thing I'll say, some of the early environments were pretty lush and amazing. Like it's a rainforesty, mossy areas. Some of the colors were really fantastic. And if they juxtapose that more with like 
driver, you know, Mills's crazy tech and had it in these like luscious landscapes. Like that would have been really beautiful. And they do that a little bit, but not enough. And so I did enjoy the actual physical space of the film sort of early on, but then it, it quickly loses its way and I became too frustrated with it. Thankfully, it's only an hour and a half and, <laughs> and Driver can do action. I would like to see him have another crack at this kind of film, but this one didn't quite stick for me, unfortunately. Oh, is there a, uh, a main dinosaur um, antagonist, like, you know, one that keeps hunting? Well, them? again... Rob, that would have been fantastic if we have a consistent predator that's coming along. But, no, there's kind of a mishmash of different ones. And, yes, there are some oh. – um, there's one that returns that, you know, they've had an encounter with earlier in the film and it returns for the big. But you don't really feel – and that's the other thing. I didn't feel the dinosaurs were characters in this. I think when it's done really well, you do feel they are a presence, whereas this just felt like, oh, oh, there's the dinosaurs. We better just put them in this scene and, you know, make a bit of action happen. They weren't, mm. they didn't feel rich and interesting the way they do in Jurassic Park. Like I hate to harp on about it, but I think um, they didn't put enough thought into how to make the dinosaur stuff really sing. I'm a bit worried about the fact of a, a guy called Adam being left in prehistoric times to found the human race perhaps. Right? Yes, yeah. Well, <laughs> and this is it. Like some of the concept was interesting and I think um, – it just there's a lot of unrealized potential here. So that was sixty five. This, this kind of dinosaur versus modern humans, or mm, you yes, know, uh, ancient astronauts. I suppose in this yeah. case, <laughs> no. I mean, every Ray Bradbury, David Drake, and they've all made great fists of this in in stories yeah. and so on. But you know, so it can be handled really well, yeah. but doesn't sound like it here. Yes. Oh. Yeah. What do we got it as a zero G rating? Yeah, no, nah, I'd say it's enough from me. But look, check it out. It might be something to see when it, it hits streaming. Just check it out. If you're a driver fan, can't hurt. I just felt that it it wasn't a waste of time. Like I had a lot of fun making fun of it, but it wasn't the silly all out action film that I was hoping for. So sixty five, it's in cinemas now. Watch at own risk. <laughs> A lot of troposaurs stomping around, uh -huh. sounds like. Well, let's go out with a small track here. It's a television show theme tune from 1974, The Land of the Lost, okay. which was one where, well, it's actually all in the song. <laughs> uh, and then a couple of characters end up after an earthquake in The Land of the Lost, which has dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And it was all done with stop animation. Nice. And it's actually quite quaint now, looked, looking back at it. It was kind of fun. I enjoyed it. So Land of the Lost, the theme composed by Linda Laurie back in the day. All right, that's it for Zero G for today. And Joe Bernatic is coming up next with Astral Glamour. Thanks to Alice Savage, our podcaster. And thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.